Well, it's wonderful to join you again. I know I say that every time, but it really is, and I love you, and I counted a privilege to be able to share some things with you. Uh, before we go to Psalm 74, I want to thank all of you for your help and for your support uh, Sunday evening as we ministered to our law enforcement and uh, first responders. I think the IMSA people really, really enjoyed it because uh, they showed up in force and um, it, it was, they expressed a lot. And I know it was very encouraging to people who serve us like that. And I want to thank all of you who gave for that. Thank you for your giving. Thank you for your offerings. And we ask you certainly to continue as we move on through all of this. But just know this, that in what we're doing, the ministry of the Lord, the work of the gospel and of the church continues on and we're going to do everything and anything that we can that the Lord puts on our heart to uh, try to reach people and to try to do what we ought to be doing. Uh, this is not the time to retreat. This is not the time to give up, but we'll use whatever we can and do whatever we can to try to advance the uh, cause of Christ. So thank you so much for your prayers and your giving and your support and all of the volunteers and uh, in fact, I'm recording this on uh, Wednesday morning, and later on this afternoon, uh, you gave a whole lot of snacks and things like that to our, our local precinct, and we're going to be delivering those at about 1.30 this afternoon. So there's another Graceway blessing that's given to people who serve us. Well, let's go ahead and let's turn to Psalm 74, and we'll continue to hear what uh, Mr. Asaph has to say to us. And uh, this whole psalm has kind of resonated with the confusing and weird times in which we live because that's certainly what he was bewildered about. And you go through this psalm and you notice his various, uh, the various movements and the emotions that he feels. We've all kind of felt that and we all have things that hit us in different ways. You know, it's easy when everything's going well and maybe you're inside a church worshiping the Lord, the music's been great, the message is inspiring, the fellowship has been uh, rewarding and fulfilling, and we can say amen to a lot of things that are very difficult to live when life just sort of punches you in the throat. And a lot of people are going through those kind of things and with the media and with a lot of falsehood and manipulation from the enemy, you know, there are a lot of people that are living lives in fear and in confusion. And we must remember that God is not the author of confusion. We don't need to give in to a lot of that. And we need to kind of practice what we preach, and that is trusting in a sovereign God and doing it with joy. You know, there are some times when we find people who say, well, God is in control, but they say it like it's the worst possible thing that could ever happen to anyone. And sometimes we are getting to the point where, and we're going to talk about this in this section of Scripture, where we need to pray, but we act like praying is like this horrible, awful, last resort thing that we have to do. And, well, let me ask you a couple of questions. First of all, what kind of a witness is that? Not only to the world, but well, maybe even to your own children, to your own family. What is that really saying about God, the promises of his word and who he is? You know, um, we've talked before about how the Bible talks about the great and terrible day of the Lord. And sometimes we act as though everything God does is just kind of terrible, as if maybe we could have managed it better or we have a better idea if God would only listen to us. And we've got to get out of that mentality. The other thing 
that I would uh, ask you is, when you are thinking like that, what does that do in terms of your faith? What does that do? Are you really praying, believing, and expecting God to move? Do you handle situations, even the negative situations, with the peace of God? And are you witnessing to the Lord in a powerful way when you are kind of acting like it's all doom and gloom and God doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, it's time for a, a, a checkup from the neck up, somebody said one time, to, to think about our attitude and to think about our outlook on things. Well, as we uh, do this, we think about Asaph coming from this time. Remember a couple of weeks ago, he was doing all of the whys and you know, what's going on, Lord, and almost kind of an explain yourself kind of thing. Well, we've all felt that way, and we've all wondered where God is and what he's doing and why doesn't he do things more and why doesn't he stop things, why doesn't he start certain things. And uh, to people who were watching the aftermath of their beloved temple being destroyed, when they're thinking about the Gentiles being able to march into a place where no Jew could go, except the high priest. And the high priest could only do it after certain rituals and only one time a year. And yet these pagans are marching into that place and God does nothing. Do you think that might make them question a lot of things? Do you think that might make them wonder, has God abandoned us or was any of this real? And it was just a, a horrible time for all of them. And yet Asaph moves down into this section and he's moving into what I'm calling from complaining to actually praying. I got to uh, thinking about myself. Yeah, that's a good place to start when you read the scripture. Thinking about myself. Before I ever think about preaching to you, I have to apply it to me, right? How many of my prayers or how much of my prayers or maybe what percentage of my praying is actually more complaining than it is anything else. Now, sometimes we um, are permitted, it seems like, to make complaints to God. All through the Psalms we find that. And the prophets did that and other people. I don't understand this, what's going on, that type of thing. But sometimes it turns to more of just complaining about life and situations and people to complaining about God himself. And that's a dangerous place to be in. Well, Asaph has gone from his prayers of complaint to now some more, I think, uh, solid reasons to pray. I hope this encourages you. As we read in Psalm 74, going to verse 18 and just down to 21. It's a little section in here. And Asaph says this. Remember this that the enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people have blasphemed your name. O do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise your name. When Asaph speaks of that, he's talking about the cruelty of the Babylonians. He's talking about the wicked forces in high places 
And he's talking about the things that they are doing to try to squash the nation, to try to destroy their faith, to try to destroy their hope. Now, of course, you and I know who is behind this. It's the adversary. It's Satan and his demons as they use all of this. Now, remember, this was planned by God. The exile, the captivity, the uh, destruction of the temple, all of that was planned by God. God's people had to learn some things. They were messing around with idolatry, and even after warning, after warning, after warning from all of the prophets, they just kind of ignored it. And then he was also going after their own superstition. Isn't it kind of funny, strange, interesting, whatever word you want to use, that the Jews themselves had kind of become superstitious about their worship of God. They thought that because the temple was in their land, oh, we'll never be destroyed. God won't destroy his own house. And uh, then they watch with horror. They watch with fear and bewilderment as the enemy comes in. And they not only knock down the walls of the city. Remember, Nehemiah had to rebuild them later on. They began to plunder the temple. And it's not enough that they destroy it, but they were looters. And they go in and they take everything out of the temple that they wanted for, and take it back to Babylon, as well as taking the brightest and best of the uh, children of the nobility, people like Daniel. Now you watch all of that, and what does that leave Jerusalem? What does that leave Judah and Israel like? In ruins, shambles. And they don't have enough resources. They don't have enough capital. They don't even have enough in terms of population and uh, the, the brightest and best thinkers. They're all gone. They've either been killed or taken into exile. And so now what do they do? And what are they supposed to, how are they supposed to handle all of this situation? I mean, as we watch all of this, maybe it makes sense that they would begin to question God and even as Asaph kind of uh, intimates in this prayer, question even the covenant of God. Where's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Where's all, where are all the, the promises? And where is all this coming from? Well, it's not God's fault. This is Israel's fault, Judah's fault. And as they began to see this all destroyed, it's as if God is saying, if you've got such a love affair with idolatry, I'm going to let sure enough true blue idolaters come in and destroy all of those things that are sacred that you put your trust in that were substitutes for the living God. You know, it is so easy for us to think that because Maybe we gave a tithe. Okay, now the rest of, the li of life is mine. God, get off my back and I'll spend the rest of my money the way that I please. And that's why the New Testament teaches a bigger thing than just giving 10%. You're supposed to give everything and manage that money as a steward for God. But we want to do a little ritual, a little religious activity that will sort of pacify God and keep him happy and keep him off our back so we can do whatever we want. That's what Israel and Judah was doing. And they thought that because of the presence of the temple and because of their rituals, that their idolatry didn't matter, that their immorality wouldn't matter, that because they kind of, you know, got the things for God done out of the way, they could do anything else they wanted. In fact... God seems to be saying in this era, you, my people, were actually more superstitious and idolatrous than the pagans were. The pagans don't know any better, 
But God is saying my people should have known better. They had the word of God. They had history. They had the covenants. They had the prophets of God. And yet they didn't listen to them. I think the lesson in that is sometimes we think that because we go to church that guarantees us that we can do anything else we want and there will be no repercussions. Well, that's not true, is it? And we've got to be careful about not making a quiet time or our walk with God or the things we do or don't do more of a superstition than something that is done out of love and respect for the God who made us and created us and loves us. I hope that makes sense because I think that's where a lot of Christians are in America. I think that's kind of where America is. And during this season of elections, you're going to see more religious things, more references to God, more Bible-quoted politicians showing up in churches or speaking about religious things. And then after the election, it'll largely be forgotten and it'll, uh, life will go on because there's this idea still that if we kind of acknowledge God, like God's a needy little beggar who just wants a little affirmation from us, then everything's going to be okay. And I think that's why we're seeing some of the turmoil we're seeing now. I think God is dismantling our idols in the United States of America. So maybe we need to think about this and we need to pray. A lot of people, and I'm speaking to you, a lot of people say they want revival and we need revival and we want God back in our government and in our lifestyle again. And yet they're, very, they're not very interested in praying, not very interested in God, seeking God, not very interested in reforming their life at all. They just want to kind of rub a magic lamp and let the genie fix everything. And uh, we've got to get serious about our walk with God. Let me give you some reasons why we should do this and how we move from just complaining to actually praying, something that really does... Um, honor the Lord. Number one would be this. We need to pray because of God's glory. Remember this, that the enemy, look at this, has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Now Asaph is getting down to the crux of the matter. Foolish people have blasphemed the name of God, and some of them were Jews. Many of them were Babylonians, of course. But some of them were even Jews. And as Asaph gets down to the conclusion of this psalm, the Holy Spirit wants us to see that the key issue is not our well-being. It's not what we own. It's not the miracles that we get to experience. It's not power and blessing upon our lives. It's the glory of God. Didn't the Bible tell us that, therefore, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, from the most mundane things to the very important things, what are we to do? All to the glory of God. Boy, we forget that. Boy, we forget that. In fact, Jesus, when the disciples said, teach us to pray, the very first thing he said is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There is the issue. And a lot of our prayers aren't answered because we don't really have the glory of God in our focus. It's our selfishness. It's our complaints. It's us trying to manipulate God into doing something that we want him to do for getting our will done on earth as it is in heaven instead of hallowing the name of God. So there you go. If you want your prayer life to be effective, you've got to aim at the glory of God. This is where they failed, and they failed so very, um, very much. 
It's the first thing Jesus taught, not the last thing. Um, sin is falling short of the glory of God. Therefore, anything in our lives, no matter how good it may look, no matter how religious it may be, even if it is done biblically sometimes, if it falls short of the glory of God, if that's not really where our heart is, then the Bible says that it is sin. That means that it's possible for me to preach a biblically accurate sermon. Biblically interpreting and proclaiming the word of God. But if I do it for me, or if I do it for you, or any other reason than the glory of God, well, if all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, what did that sermon just become? It's a major gulp for me. But that's true in your life as well. In anything that we do, all things for the glory of God. we got a lot of sin to confess, don't we? Number two, when we move our prayer from complaining to real prayer, why do we do that? Number two, because of our vulnerability. Now you'll notice here that Asaph talks about the people of God, those who were related to him in a covenant, as a turtle dove. Okay, I'm going to admit to you, I don't know much about turtle doves. But I do know that it's a bird, and I would hate to see a bird, a dove of any kind, try to uh, stand up against, say, a lion. I would hate to see them get into a battle because I know who's going to win, and I know who's going to lose. And so Asaph is saying that the people of God, we're like your turtle dove. I mean, we're nice and sweet and all of those kind of things that you might think of when you think of turtle doves. And I know the song's going through your mind as well as mine. But uh, here's the deal. They're not very powerful. They're not very aggressive. They're not going to win any battles against a wild beast. You know what Asaph is saying? We, as the people of God, are a whole lot more vulnerable than we think we are. We tend to think we are strong, we're powerful, we're wise, and uh, yet the Bible teaches something else. Have you ever heard this? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Well, I know that's Old Testament, and we're New Testament believers, and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit and indwelt by Him, so certainly that's not true of us, except the Apostle Paul said something like this, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I pictured it like this. You ever uh, watched somebody walking on stilts, maybe that tall guy at a circus or the fair or something like that. Let's picture this. You and I are like that guy walking on stilts. Do you wear, a, wear stilts as you go and march into the battle? You go, well, no, that'd be preposterous. You'd be very easy to be knocked down. That's the way we are when we think that we are better than we actually are, stronger than we actually are, and we try to fight the enemy in our own strength. We're fighting the battle on stilts we're very very vulnerable we're the turtle dove that is being thrown to the wild beasts this is going to be a massacre martin luther wrote in that great hymn a mighty fortress is our god he said um, if we in our own did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing and that's where we kind of have to approach this from. You and I do not have the strength, the wisdom, or the ability to engage the world, the flesh, or the devil and his demons in our own strength. The next line of that hymn says, We're not the right man on our side. Well, that's the key. 
And who is that man? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. And so when we go to battle in our own strength, we are not seeing ourselves properly and we don't understand there's a massacre that is waiting to happen unless we do what we do for the glory of God and in the strength and the power of the Lord. Jesus said in John 15, 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, we've got this idea that God is the one who just can't get it done and we are the ones that are going to help God get his kingdom and his work and, and oh, God's going to be proud of us. Look what we have done for him. And Jesus said, apart from me, ye can do nothing. When are we going to get that in our head? That'll revolutionize your prayer life. That'll revolutionize the need that you feel for prayer because you can't do anything apart from him. You're a turtle dove that's being thrown into a den of lions. You are trying to fight the battle on stilts and you're in trouble. That's why he talks about those who were oppressed, defeated, and those who are poor, those have no strength or resources on their own. So to think that you can stand on your own is pride. And again, you know what that happens. Number three, we move from complaining to praying, uh, praying, when, praying, praying when you see the sufficiency of his word. Notice in verse 20. This is very, very interesting. And I hope you get it in, in, in the insight here. It's very important. Have respect to your covenant. How dare you say that? Asaph, to say have respect for your covenant. I mean, is that, is that right? I mean, boy, I would never say anything like that. Except Asaph is expressing something that is the very need. Here's the thing you've got to see. Asaph is asking God by his grace to do something that Israel and Judah had not done. When you put it in that perspective, you see why he prayed that. He was not coming and saying, God, where are you and why aren't you doing what you promised to do? He is humbly asking God to have respect for the very covenant that Israel and Judah trampled. The covenant that they would spit upon. The covenant that they ignored. The covenant that they put through the shredder. They didn't live up to anything that they were supposed to do in the covenant. And now look at the aftermath of all of it. So when Asaph is asking God, have respect for the covenant, he's saying to this, saying this, Oh Lord, we don't deserve this, so it's going to be by your grace. And Lord, we are asking you because you are the Holy One and we are not. Because you're the perfect one and we are not. Because you're the one who never lies and we are not. Have respect to your covenant. Remember us once again. You favored us, Lord, in the past. And now we have trampled all over that. And now we're at our lowest point. Have respect for your covenant. What was the covenant? The covenant that God had made with Abraham, reiterated with Isaac and Jacob, and even the Davidic covenant. Remember those things that you said. Here's the key in your word. And so as we think about the way that we are praying here, we're talking about the promise of the sufficiency of the Word of God. Have respect to your covenant. Now, why do we need your covenant? Because dark places on, of the earth are full 
of the haunts of cruelty. Whatever is going on now that they think, oh, this couldn't possibly get any worse. Yeah, it can. Yeah, it can. And in those dark places and in the hidden places, there's corruption, there's rottenness, there's planning and scheming to further do harm to the work of Christ, to the name of Jesus, and to the people of God. You and I have no idea, no idea. So as we navigate the uh, places of darkness and all of the things that the enemy might be doing and doing through the people that follow him, how are we supposed to navigate it? Well, we ask God to remember and respect his word. In other words, we navigate by the word of God. This is why the Bible says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Because without that, I'm going to stumble. I'm going to fumble. I'm not going to see things clearly. I'm going to imagine things that are not there. And I'm going to see things that really are there in a way that they don't really look. That's like a little kid that might actually be seeing his closet and the doors are open and he's seeing the clothes in his closet, but without a light, he sees them as something frightful. He sees them as a monster. But when the light comes on, oh, okay, those are just my clothes. Everything's okay. That's the way it is as we walk through this world. And some of you are more fearful than you ought to be. And some of you are more naive than you ought to be. You need the word of God to shine the light on the pathway in which you are walking. And the key to our culture, the key to our family, the key to our own lives getting right is going to be when we get back to not our intuition, not following everybody else, and certainly not living by Facebook memes, right? But getting back to the inerrant, infallible, eternal, all-sufficient word of God. Israel had forgotten the covenant. They violated the covenant. And God has never done that. And Asaph is praying, oh God, respect your covenant. We can't live without it. Israel would be walking in the darkness. And then number four, because of his compassion and his power. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Well, the oppressed can't do anything for themselves, but God could change that, couldn't they? Couldn't he? And let the poor and the needy praise your name. You see, we've got to remember that God is both compassionate and powerful. Now, if God is just a compassionate God who's out there somewhere in outer space looking down on us and going, oh, look what's happening. Oh, that's so sad. That's more than we deserve, but that doesn't do anything for us. And if God is out there in the universe and he is this powerful and angry God ready to zap everybody with lightning bolts and all of that, he would destroy us. But the two things come together in the grace of God. He's compassionate. He feels for us. He's touched by our infirmities. The Lord Jesus Christ is called a sympathetic high priest. He understands what we're going through. But he is also the powerful God who can do something about the things that we are going through. That's why we pray. The glory of God. This is at stake. And we pray because we are vulnerable and we don't even understand our own weaknesses. We pray because there is a sufficiency in the word of God that we can't muster up and nothing else can substitute for it. And we pray because a holy God is both compassionate and he is powerful and he is our hope. Let me conclude 
by reading the words from a very old hymn. You're going to love this. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Don't you love that? Under the shadow of thy throne, thy saints are kept secure. Sufficient is uh, thine self alone and our eternal home. Think about what that is really saying. Our hope in ages past, our hope for years to come, and where is our safety? I hope you voted yesterday, but there's no safety in that. I hope you vote in November, but there's no safety in that. But our safety and our hope really is in the Lord. God has worked in our nation, in our culture, in our families, in our church, and in our lives in mighty ways in the past. He is our hope for the future, and that's why we pray to Him. It's more than just whining. It's more than just complaining. It's a statement of faith, and it's for the glory of God. And yes, it does benefit us. So thank you so much for tuning into this. I pray that this will bless you, and um, you know, I hesitate to say anything like this, but these four points are things that every believer needs to think about. Tell someone else to watch this. Share it with somebody else in some way, because this is the message that Asaph gives us through the inerrant Word of God that we desperately need to hear, and even more desperately need to put into practice. God bless you, and thank you for your time.